Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, I'm Jennifer Blom, a narrator at Macmillan Audio. If you enjoyed the Unknown History podcast, there's a new audiobook I think you'll love from our team. It's called Undelivered by Jeff Nussbaum. If you like what you hear, you can find the audiobook wherever audiobooks are sold. The goal of a speech in almost all cases is to persuade. Persuading someone to take an action requires shaking them from their complacency or encouraging them to act on an already held belief. Persuading someone to see a different point of view often requires challenging their previously held assumptions. But there are times when an audience can be shaken too hard or challenged too much. What happens when someone other than the speaker decides that a speech goes too far? Chapter 1 John Lewis on the March on Washington, August 1963 Ensuring that multiple speeches fit the moment. Patience is a dirty and nasty word. The organizers of the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom had promised a peaceful march, and it was this promise that allowed many faith leaders and white liberal organizations to join. President Kennedy, in endorsing the march, also emphasized peace, describing the gathering as, quote, peaceful assembly for the redress of grievances. 23-year-old John Lewis, just months into his job as the head of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, the student wing of the Civil Rights Movement, saw the endorsement of the event by the president as co-opting the urgent, insistent, and anti-establishment nature of the movement. Lewis had been active in the Civil Rights Movement since he was turned away from his local library in Alabama at the age of 16, when he showed up to get a library card and check out some books. While in college in Tennessee, he became a leading figure in the Nashville sit-in movement and had endured being spat on and burned with lit cigarettes during sit-ins. He had been one of the original 13 Freedom Riders who boarded a Greyhound bus in Washington, D.C. and attempted to ride to New Orleans, Louisiana in 1961 to test the recent Supreme Court decision that found segregation in interstate travel unconstitutional. At a stop in Rock Hill, South Carolina, Lewis and his seatmate were attacked and beaten by an angry mob of white supremacists. By the time he assumed the SNCC chairmanship, he had been arrested more than 30 times. Over the course of his life, he would be arrested 45 times. SNCC was on the front lines of the civil rights movement, leading boycotts and demonstrating for desegregation and Lewis was at the front of the front. Having seen both injustice and inaction, Lewis, quote, felt defiance in every direction, against the entrenched segregation of the South, against the neglect of the federal government, and also against the conservative concerns 
of the established factions. And now the March on Washington, a pivotal moment for civil rights, was being neutered and defanged by the other organizers, the president and faith leaders. Cortland Cox, the SNCC representative on the March Committee, recognized that Lewis, speaking on behalf of SNCC, would bring a, quote, different energy to the march. After all, they were the ones living with volunteers, witnessing extreme poverty and unchecked violence, and quite literally risking their lives every day for the cause of civil rights. SNCC members didn't want to march in Washington. They wanted to march on Washington. And there was some debate as to whether SNCC should just pull out of the event entirely. But John Lewis felt that, quote, we needed to be there to have our voice heard in our own words with our own tone. A week before the event, with these concerns front of mind, Lewis began drafting his remarks. He described his thinking succinctly. I didn't want to be part of a parade. I wanted to see discipline and organization on this day, but I wanted it to have an air of militancy as well, even some disruption if necessary. Discipline disruption. I've always believed in aggressive nonviolence. I've always believed in putting some sting into it. I wanted this march to have some sting. And if the only place for that sting would be in my speech, then I needed to make sure my words were especially strong. James Foreman, the executive secretary of SNCC, a decade older than most of its members and more confrontational, stressed the importance of Lewis's speech having concrete details. Foreman advocated for the mention of Marion King, who, six months pregnant, was walking with her children to the jail in Albany, Georgia, to bring food to imprisoned civil rights protesters when she was knocked to the ground and kicked in the midsection by two policemen. She lost consciousness, and she lost the baby. The Friday before the march, Lewis went to New York to attend a fundraising concert for the march at the Apollo Theater. It featured stars Quincy Jones, Tony Bennett, Thelonious Monk, and many others. While at the march headquarters, he shared a draft of his speech with some trusted friends. Cortland Cox suggested adding the observation that both political parties had abandoned the cause of civil rights. After all, an avowed racist like James Eastland of Mississippi was a Democrat, just like Kennedy. And a progressive Republican like Jacob Javits sat in the Republican caucus with Barry Goldwater, a fierce opponent of civil rights. Where, the question was asked, is our party. That went into the speech. As did a discussion of how weak the pending civil rights bill that Kennedy had sent to Congress was. That weekend, Lewis was struck by a photo in the New York Times showing a group of women in what is now Zimbabwe holding a sign reading, One Man, One Vote. It seemed a perfect summation of everything they were fighting for, and into the speech it went. And as a coup de grace, Lewis added to the draft a stern rebuke to those who counseled patience. To those who have said, be patient and wait, we must say that patience is a dirty and nasty word. Ultimately, Lewis wanted to remind people that this wasn't just freedom rides or sit-ins or marches. It was a revolution, one that was sweeping across America. He wove the concept of revolution throughout the draft, but wanted to somehow sharpen it. An idea came from Tom Kahn, an aide to Bayard Rustin, another one of the march organizers. 
Tom came up with the notion of using General William Sherman's March to the Sea during the Civil War. Like Sherman, we were an army, a nonviolent army, bent on nothing less than destruction, the destruction of segregation. This became the line, We will march through the South, through the heart of Dixie, the way Sherman did. We shall pursue our own scorched earth policy and burn Jim Crow to the ground, nonviolently. Lewis was happy with the draft, and the next day he headed to D.C. While John Lewis wanted his words at the march amped up, most Americans wanted the march itself toned down. Analysis done by the Pew Research Center found that most Americans were wary of the March on Washington. By that August, 69% had heard about the march, and 63% of them had an unfavorable opinion of it. Even with more than half of Americans outside the South favoring equal rights legislation, a large majority thought mass demonstrations by African Americans would be detrimental to the cause. Despite the promises of peace, Washington, D.C. prepared for war. On the evening of Tuesday, August 27th, as marchers began arriving, the city was on high alert. Leaves for every police unit in the district had been canceled so that all were on duty, with backup units from the surrounding suburbs on standby. At the request of the Washington police, which would be facing, quote, a severe strain, The Washington Senators did not play their scheduled game against the Minnesota Twins that Tuesday, nor would they the next day. Instead, they played a doubleheader the day before, and they'd play another doubleheader on the 29th. 2,000 members of the National Guard had been deployed, a force that included Washington Redskins quarterback Norm Sneed and four of his teammates. Seeing Sneed surrounded by guardsmen, one writer quipped, That's the most protection Norm has had this year. 4,000 Army troops stood ready in the D.C. suburbs, and 15,000 paratroopers had been put on standby in North Carolina. 30 Army helicopters patrolled the skies, swooping low over the city. The city ordered 350 firefighters to switch roles and take on police duty on the day of the march. Hospitals canceled elective surgeries. And that night at midnight, for the first time since Prohibition, a ban on liquor sales went into effect for all of D.C.'s 1,900 licensed liquor outlets. While D.C. was nervous, the march planners were remarkably calm. Everything was in good shape, and the day before the march was a quiet and orderly one. As the SNCC contingent arrived at the Hilton on 16th Street, Cortland Cox saw that advanced copies of Whitney Young's speech were being made available for the press. From the beginning of John Lewis's time as SNCC chairman, Cox and others had been urging him to step forward, to demand more attention. Lewis, who was less attracted to the spotlight, did so only reluctantly. Cox saw an opportunity to get some attention for Lewis and Snick. Bayard Rustin, seeing Cox distribute copies of Lewis's speech, asked, What are you doing that for? No one is seeing King's speech. In point of fact, Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech wasn't nearly complete at that hour and even the version he delivered at the march diverged significantly from the text he brought to the lectern. That evening, Archbishop Patrick O'Boyle of Washington, D.C. was hosting a reception at the Mayflower Hotel for a few of the bishops who had come to Washington for the march. The Catholic community in general, and Archbishop O'Boyle in particular, 
had been early and strong proponents of the march. O'Boyle may not have fit the picture of a champion of racial justice, but at a time when Washington, D.C. was living under Jim Crow segregation, he worked to desegregate Washington's Catholic schools, starting with colleges and universities and working his way down to elementary schools, often facing stiff resistance. He developed programs to aid black people of all faiths in the city. Although nervous about the march, O'Boyle had encouraged parishioners to attend and readily agreed to deliver the opening invocation. While O'Boyle was at the reception, an aide brought him a copy of John Lewis's speech. What he saw caused him to rethink his position. He couldn't deliver an invocation at the march if this was the type of language he was blessing. He called an aide to Walter Ruther, the head of the AFL-CIO and another march organizer. His message was clear. If Lewis insisted on giving his speech as written, O'Boyle wouldn't deliver the invocation. And if O'Boyle dropped out of the march, it would put President Kennedy and his brother, the Attorney General, in a bind. As Drew Hansen wrote in his masterful history of Dr. King's speech, The Dream, Martin Luther King Jr. and the speech that inspired a nation, if the Catholic Church's most prominent representative withdrew from the march at the last minute, it would mar the image of the event as a peaceful, multiracial, and multireligious demonstration for civil rights. The Kennedys hoped the presence of priests and clerical collars and nuns wearing habits would reassure an anxious Washington public. Thank you for listening to this clip provided to you by Macmillan Audio. To hear more, look for this title wherever audiobooks are sold. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.